Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and I'm delighted you've taken the time to hit play. My guests this week are Cece Edwards-Jensen and Mike Jensen, and their story of the Camino Via de la Plata awaits. But first, I want you to ask yourself, am I a mouse in a wheel? It will all make sense later, but I have to say, yes, I am a mouse in a wheel. I'm charging on every day and doing very well, I might add. I'm executive producer of The Briefing Podcast here in Australia. Under my guidance, we've been nominated for the best podcast in two major media awards ceremonies in Australia. And my employers are delighted. And I'm proud to say that the audience has grown significantly on my watch. I'm simply saying I was handed a brief and I delivered. But it's a bit like Saul Valdez said in episode 251. We are capable of doing difficult things, but I still feel like a mouse on a wheel. When I'd rather this. Let's be realistic. You can't simply down tools, walk away from your family and commitments and head off on some wild adventure in Spain. But you can talk to your family as I did and explain to them, I think this is what my spirit needs right now. And as you've heard on the podcast over the last five years, people have been transformed on the Camino. They talk about sitting with other pilgrims, experiencing even just for a moment what it is that makes this pilgrim tick, this pilgrim from some other corner of the globe. You'll sit in cafes with pilgrims from South Korea, Italy, Norway, Canada, Wales, New Zealand, Chile, Brazil, Cuba, the US, the UK, and more. And you'll find yourself talking about someone else's life, someone else's love, someone else's problems. And you'll be not necessarily the oracle of knowledge, but you'll be a sounding board for another pilgrim's journey, their love, their life, their journey, their energy. And in that moment, you will find a Camino within. It's not your contribution, it's your being, your patience, your Camino. If you're new to the podcast, this is a reflection on El Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. It's an ancient pilgrimage, and pilgrims walk from all over the world to the remains of Christ's Apostle St. James, interred in a magnificent cathedral in the northwest Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela, St. James under a field of stars. Well, this week I want to tell two stories, a couple walking side by side. It's about happiness, and maybe the yellow arrows can point you in the direction you need to go without you actually knowing it. Imagine if the yellow arrows suggested happiness is that way. Roy R. Bennett was the author of books like The Light in the Heart, wrote, Real change is difficult at the beginning, but gorgeous at the end. Change begins the moment you get the courage and step outside your comfort zone. Change begins at the end of your comfort zone. Well, we're about to embark on a journey of discovery and change. My guests this week are Cece Edwards-Jensen and Mike Jensen, husband and wife and co-authors of Happiness Is That Way. 55 days on the Camino Via de la Plata. Welcome, pilgrims. Thank you. Hello, Dan. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much. 
I loved the book. I really did. And I picked it up and didn't put it down. Although I'm a bit of a rabid researcher. <laughs> it's full of highlights and, and post-it notes. Cece, let me start with you. Can you explain for us exactly what the Camino Via de la Plata is? It's a thousand K walk. Um, originally, it's from Seville to Estoya, but um, we took the um, route of the Via de la Plata up to La Grana and made a left turn instead of going on to Astoria and took the Sanabras Way. It's called the Silver Way and um, originated with the Romans and um, so many, many pilgrims have walked that way over hundreds and hundreds of years. Is there evidence of the Romans being there? Are you walking on Roman roads? Absolutely. The, um, we actually walked on the original Roman flagstones. Not all the time, of course, but um, we did intermittently. Um, it's, especially now in modern days, the road does deviate a little from the trail that used to be because of the roads, the highways now. But, um, yes, on occasions you're on those flagstones. And that, oh, what that does to you, it, what that, where that takes you spiritually and um, emotionally that you've, you know, the hardship of those times and um, the building of those roads, which were absolutely amazing, um, takes you a whole different place because we've not known in Australia anyway how old, we don't have an appreciation of how old those things are because we're such a young country as in our white settlement. Of course, we're 60,000 years old in our um, Indigenous mm. and original Australian peoples. But in our experience, that's um, that was amazing, yeah. Wow. So the book, Happiness is That Way, is Cece's vision and then Mike's vision, or maybe it's Cece's version and then Mike's version. <laughs> so, Mike, let me come to you. The book starts with a, a reflection on day one. You walk to the edge of town, realize your packs are too heavy, you're lost, you almost get run over, and you say you'd have been more than happy to go back to the hotel and spend the day wandering around Seville. And that's a very interesting perspective because you really were on a walk to begin with, not a pilgrimage, weren't you? Uh, yeah, not, not even just a walk down. A part of me just wanted to have a holiday. Mm. And um, as, as I sort of started the Camino and uh, I guess as I researched it and learned more about it, I thought, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is not really what I had in mind or this is uh, a little different. So I, I started out with an idea that this would be a great break from life. It would be a great holiday. It'd be something that would be a whole lot of great stories that I could share with friends. But um, I began to realise this is not a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, and I think it dawned on me that, that first morning. Yeah. And I thought, gee, I could be here or I could be back in Seville. I could be sitting in a cafe or a bar sipping a glass of, of, of uh, vino tinto. <laughs> Instead, I'm about to head off on a thousand kilometre walk. Now, for those of you in in other parts of the world, that's from Sydney to Brisbane, two capital cities in Australia, and that's a long, long way. That's an immense. CC to you. Let's go to Seville 
and the blessing. Tell us about the blessing you received before you began because it really moved you. Oh, absolutely. Um, Look, originally we went to the cathedral and not being, I guess, a bit judgmental, it wasn't, it didn't touch me. And, you know, we went there to have our credential stamp, my first one. We'd been, you know, waiting to do this for like a year and a half and we finally get there and we have our credentials stamped and it was all very official And I walked away thinking, oh, okay, well, that's the way it is. But then the next day we were passing a church. We could hear singing and we went in and sat in the back row and it was just such a, a time of community. You could see that these people were really connected to this little church. And um, after the service, I wrote a note um, for someone to take it to the priest and told, virtually saying, could we please have a blessing because this is what we're doing. And we waited a little while and then we were shown into one of the back rooms there and the priest was there and he was so, he was just so present to us. This was, you could see that this was important for us and what it meant, the preparation, the time getting there, um, just to, you know, he would have an idea of what we were embarking on before we did. <laughs> so he opened his prayer book. He had his stole around his neck and everything in Spanish, of course. And afterward, he, he touched us on our heads and blessed us and gave us that peregrino blessing. And uh, I was just in tears. Mm. Um Trying to hold it back yeah. because it was like everything had come together. It, we were feeling vulnerable and fragile, excited at the same time, a whole heap of different emotions and sort of walking off into the unknown. We've never done anything like this before other than our walks at home, you know, be longer walks or whatever, but this is all so different in a different country uh, with everything that is different. Um, and we have been travellers, so it's not as if it, this was, you know, new to travelling for us, but this would just drill down into this really special moment. And I was just so taken aback by how how kind, how gentle, how compassionate and how present, and that was the main word for me, that he was present to us and validating uh, what we uh, the journey that so far, and then our journey to begin the Camino. So when we away, it was just amazing, yeah, amazing feeling. And then I was ready. Reading the book, um, I don't want to say that you were cynical, Mike, but you write, I begin to understand why medieval magistrates punished people by sending them on the Via de la Plata. If spending all that time in contemplation of their sins didn't send their minds over the edge, the brigands and thieves would surely get them. And I, I love that you kind of start the book by sort of writing in that way. And then not long after you began, you started to have doubts about leaving your business. And it wasn't helped by the fact you met a couple, Anna and Frederick, who watered the seed of doubt you'd sowed 
in your own mind. Now, there would be people listening right now thinking, well, I can't really walk away and walk a thousand kilometers in Spain because I have commitments, I have job, I have business. Tell us about that. You sort of stepping away from your responsibilities and how heavily that weighed on your mind. Yeah, I didn't realize how um, how I'd feel when I actually, when I left my business and I found myself in Spain because the experience of running a business it's, I mean, it's a great experience because you feel like you're running your own, you know, you're, you're, you're in control of your own destiny. And it's, there's a lot of great challenges about the business. But then I sort of discovered, gee, this has really become so deeply a part of my identity that when I was separated from it, I, I began to think that, well, who, I, who am I without when I'm not a consultant, when I'm not running that business? And I found that all these doubts and, and fears, and I think it started even before I went to the Camino, I, I visited my neighbours across the road because um, we, we both have an interest in, in cultivating veggies. We've got, we both got veggie gardens. And they just made this innocent comment, wow, who takes off, you know, 55 days to do a walk? And there was something in the tone that stayed with me. And so I returned home and I thought, gee, Am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I being irresponsible? Uh, how will I actually cope with not, not having that business structure around me that, that gives me such a sense of meaning mm-hmm. and purpose, but, you know, probably in a very narrow, defined way. So I had to, I had to confront that part of myself when I was doing this walk. Without the things that, that made me feel good about myself and all of a sudden... It's like in this vacuum, all these anxieties just uh, flooded in. It's a really interesting observation. And, and, and actually, I'm going to leave it there because I want to come back to your thought process and your journey because it's a really interesting story. So let's leave it there for the moment. Cece, there's a part of the book that intrigued me. You met a couple who live in Santiago de Compostela, and you're intrigued by that. You say, you can't imagine living in a city like Mecca, Jerusalem, or Santiago. Why is that? Well, that's a good question. Santiago seemed like this, um, you know, this beacon, this spiritual beacon, and it was like it was bigger than bigger than anything and yeah. some part of me maybe i'm you know a little bit um fantastical or um uh it was like a fairy tale in a way that uh you know that i was walking then i was getting closer and closer and this was sort of blowing up in my mind a bit and it was being about the, the end point. So when I met Marga and, and um, Jesus, they sort of brought me down a notch into and gave me a dose of reality in a way that I wasn't expecting. So when they, I said, you know, where do you live? I was Santiago. I said, Excuse me? Santiago, this was fantastical to me. So I thought surely all the things that go on in normal life don't go on there as well. Of course they do. I mean, it was just, it was like, yeah, I was cast under some sort of spell in doing the Camino and I hadn't really thought that through. And, of course, 
it is a beautiful town and it is um, bustling like everywhere else and we do all the same things. But because this had become such a spiritual journey for me, I think I'd blocked all that out. All I could see or feel was, you know, the church and the spiritual aspect of all this instead of the practical and et cetera. So it brought me down, broke the spell a little bit for me in that, okay, as as the Camino was, because this happened about 10 days in when we um, had this conversation with Marga, and also other things had been crumbling around me as well, my confidence, my body, my um, uh, thoughts of, um, you know, can I make it? Am I going to live up to my expectations? Yeah. Um, what what does God expect of me? What you know, all of these sorts of things were coming in for me, and um, I was really confused. Wow. What a wonderful exploration, though, for you to go through. And as we'll find out uh, in the course of the rest of the, the interview, it was quite the journey. But I want to ask both of you, right? I don't know who's going to answer this question. Uh, I started the podcast asking about a mouse in a wheel. Who is going to introduce us to Hector? Yeah, I, I drew a little cartoon for CC. I can't remember where we were on the Camino, but... Um, as you read the book, you realise that uh, we both stood it for different motivations and we have different characters. And Cece was quite driven. So when there were opportunities to have some downtime, to relax, maybe duck into a bar and, and have another, uh, another beer, um, Cece would be more of the disciplinarian. And um, she was so driven that I drew this little caricature of a hamster in a wheel and I showed it to her and I said, look, who does that remind you of? And I was, I was trying to have in a, in a humorous sort of way um, just talk about how, how we were approaching this so differently and it wasn't, it wasn't creating a tension but I could see that she found it really hard and I could, she, I could see that this drivenness was... Um, was making it, I don't know if more challenging than it needed to be, but I could see that it highlighted the struggle that she was experiencing. And I, you know, I had my own struggles, for, which included my reasons for doing it. But, but Hector was the name. And I think I, I came across the name Hector because I, I think we saw some fridge magnets at a souvenir shop. And um, one of the fridge magnets had the names of, of, of uh, people and so I bought her that fridge magnet soon after drawing that, that cartoon character. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> such a good part of the story. But, you know, yeah, and stay with you, Mike. There was a moment when a meal was placed in front of you and your reaction led CC to write, I sat quietly opposite a person who momentarily I did not recognise. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> that. And you, you must well, have had not- frustration then too, right? Well, remember too, Cece's motivations are very different from mine. And in the book, she talks a lot about her spiritual reasons for doing it. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to have a break from a busy corporate life. And there were times when my, uh, 
that my needs and expectations were much more basic than CC's. So for days, all I really wanted from the Camino was just to have a, have a good meal. And maybe it was because, you know, our Spanish was limited. We didn't know where to ask where or ask for particular types of food. But I actually found the food quite uh, monotonous and quite predictable. And I didn't realise that because each day was so, so hard, there were so few people that we met that we could converse with, and there were just so few people, you know, period, Yeah. that I really look forward to just having a good meal, sort of like a reward for doing the hard yards. And yet night after night, it seemed to be chips, uh, bacalao, which is cod, or fried pork. Yeah. And so one night I just I just lost it. <laughs> and it's it's all because I had this, you know, I had this unconscious romantic idea about how this would be. And it just, it just, it just wasn't measuring up. And, it, and I think losing it and spinning the dummy, as CC says in the book, was me confronting the fact that, wow, you know, there's reality and then there's this, this dream I had, this romantic idea of what the Camino would be like, and they were just so far apart. Wow, that's a great answer. Cece, tell us what happened to Mike and what went through your mind the day you walked out of the city of Casares. Because we, we had come back to Casares because uh, Mike had a back injury and we couldn't go on any further. And I was already feeling, um, what would be the word, um, exasperated because we'd already spent... Uh, three days or so in this town or city, which I have to say was absolutely fantastic, a beautiful medieval town. However, I, and I, I was, had been to the emergencia <laughs> to um, have my leg and um, back seen too, and so we stayed put. Then we started out again and then we had to come back because Mike's back was spasming. And... So after spending four days there, which was a godsend, really, it was a blessing in disguise because we got to know that beautiful city and, as I say in the book, and it got to know us as well. Yeah. And it led to some beautiful um, spaces and it allowed us time to balance out, to, for me to adjust my perspective and it was our anniversary as well. And so we spent time, we had a, a lovely dinner. Mike took me to this um, lovely dinner because in the actual bigger cities, the food's great. It's only in the rural areas where it, you can't really get the nutrition you need um, because also I'm a vegetarian in, in a pork-laden environment. <laughs> um, and so when we left there, it was like we'd, well, for me, I have to speak from my perspective, it was like I had new breath in me. And again, it was another lesson learned. And we were able to thank that town for all it gave us. And, you know, it's like reality stepped in, but also the universe came in and, um, 
was able to sort us out a bit. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was for, we'll be forever grateful for that, those days. And as I said, it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah. I'm going to stay with you, Cece. Um, tell us about this. May the persons caring for the pilgrims feel richly blessed in life. May the pilgrims who rest here find comfort and peace. May the moon and the stars shine light on your path. May you see life anew. May all who pass this way feel blessed and revived. Tell us about that piece of prose. Mm. Well, I wrote that after we had stayed in an albergue um, in the middle of nowhere. We came in again hot and tired, and let me preface this by saying that it was unseasonably hot, and so we were walking in 35-degree heat with our heavy packs every day with not a lot of shade. And the Via della Plata at the start is, for days on end, is um, very flat and very open, so there wasn't much reprieve um, from the heat. So each day we got in, we um, had our iced Fanta, (laughs) which we don't drink at home, but was so gorgeous there. And we found this little um, albergue. There was nothing in the town except um, the albergue, a place down the road that was closed, accommodation, uh, and a couple of bars. So we found one, one bar and next to it was the albergue. It was owned by the same people. And it was a tiny, tiny little place, so tiny, as I say in the book, that when I rehearsed sitting on the toilet, it was plumbed to a side wall and I sat down and my knees touched the opposite wall. (laughs) (laughs) So so you had to be very focused. (laughs) Um, So that night we went next door to the bar and we um, sat with the locals and they were all um, joking and roaring, laughing because they're um, soccer fanatics and um, everywhere the TV was on. And we felt, I think we felt um, part of the crew that night and the manager gave us a lovely meal that he was um, obviously very proud of and I just passed my my pork or my ham on onto my... And um, I had to start readjusting my expectations because so I would just eat um, uh, chips and a bit of tomato and lettuce and bread and maybe I would get an egg every now and again. And, of course, we'd wash that down with our glass of red, which was always good. The wine there is great yeah. and cheap. <laughs> um, then we went next door back to the albergue and... As we walked in, there's this little portico where there was a shrine to um, Mary and St James and on the other wall was a frame with a um, a blessing written and a little box um, to place your donation for the night. And this was, this was a, a little family cottage and the lady had died and she had willed this to the pilgrims to care for them. And so when I was leaving us, I thought, this has given us so much because, again, it was another perspective. Again, it was about 
being grateful for what was being offered to us and there was so much in that space, just very, um, very modest. Yes, I think that's a good word, very mm. modest and simple and so... Um, so, so, um, such a caring atmosphere and environment. Um, and so that's when leaving the next morning, I wrote that little blessing for people, for them, yeah. for the family, but so for the people that came after us because we had felt so blessed. Yeah. May the persons caring for the pilgrims feel richly blessed in life. May the pilgrims who rest here find comfort and peace. May the moon and the stars shine light on your path. May you see life anew. May all those who pass this way feel blessed and revived. It's lovely. I really love that. Mike, tell us about our Vila Vela. And I highlighted in the passage you wrote about that town and, and both of your experiences there, with the line, I lost track of the time. I don't lose track of the time ever. Yeah, losing track of the time. It's something I don't do because I guess my personality is, is I'm a fairly controlling person and I think that's come out of uh, running a business. But Villa Vella was, um, was just another, I thought it was just another little town, but the day was, was a pretty hard one because the weather was, was harsh. So up till this point, we'd experienced a lot of heat which was exhausting. But this time we were walking most of the day in, um, in rain, incredible cold rain that was almost horizontal. And finally we got to Villa Vella. We were completely soaked through. And I, um, I asked CC if she'd be okay to just stay at, at the little, um, uh, at the well in the centre of the village while I went off looking for uh, some accommodation. And I... As I walked through the, the town, I came across a couple of boys who were playing basketball and um, I asked them something in, in my broken Spanish if they knew any accommodation and they they looked at me as if I'd landed from Mars, <laughs> this, this complete stranger, and they pointed in the distance and I could hear some traffic, I could hear cars in the distance and I went and arrived at a, a petrol station, a service station, and then in the distance I saw a large building and I couldn't work out what is this? Is this like an abandoned castle or is it what? What a hotel. And I arrived eventually at this building that was called the Hotel Villa Vella, but it looked like in complete disrepair. And the paint had faded. Uh, the doors looked like they hadn't been touched up with paint for years. I was about to leave, but I thought, no, I'll, I'll just try it. So I pushed it open. And inside I just found just the remains of an abandoned lobby of this probably what once would have been a majestic hotel. And I walked around and I remember how the, the air was incredibly cold and damp and it felt like I thought to myself, boy, you know, I'm 15 years too late. This once would have been a real buzzing hotel and it would have been incredibly impressive. And I was just about to leave when I heard a slight noise. I, I thought I heard voices. And then I saw a door in the corner and I thought, am I hearing ghosts? What is this? But I pushed through the door and it's like I, I sort of walked through this portal and there was a bar and it was warm and it was buzzing with life and people were sitting around um, drinking and playing cards and the guy behind the bar beckoned me over 
And I remember squelching across in my wet shoes and everything that I wore was totally soaked. And I started to talk about a room. And um, that took a bit of negotiation. And then I had to walk up and down. He asked me, he invited me rather to look at one of the rooms. And so I climbed the marble stairs and I walked down these ghostly corridors to see if there was a room that was suitable and I found one. And it took more time when I returned just to sort of negotiate the, the the price of the room and the type of room he wanted. And then I thought, God, I've, I've totally forgotten the time. This is so uncharacteristic of me. And I realised almost an hour had passed and so, and the sun was setting. And so I rushed out of the hotel and, and went to retrace my steps to find CC, um, who I'd left at the well. So here you are looking for the place that, to stay and CC is back at the well Cece, what were you thinking? You're left in the dark, in the dark, in the rain, and you really—it was a very difficult time for you, wasn't it? It was absolutely. Um, I think because one, well, so cold by this stage. Let's talk about the opposite, you know, the extremes, <clears throat> and we're very tired. And the last few weeks had taken its toll. And I was standing there and I was pacing backwards and forwards and what would normally not seem um, particularly worrisome to me was becoming of great concern because I realised too Mike had the passports, he had the money and um, I had no identification. I didn't have a phone, I didn't take a phone with me Um, and I... I had limited, in, uh, limited um, Spanish, so I was pacing backwards and forwards and the time just seemed to go on and on and I was became worried what if something had happened to Mike, yeah. then what would happen to me as well, apart from being concerned for him. Um, and I, I walked up a little ways. There was a church on the corner which was locked. There were the boys that Mike mentioned playing basketball and they were running off and their sounds sort of drifted off down the road. There were a couple of women standing on the corner looking at me and pointing at me. One of them did come over and say something really quickly in Spanish and I couldn't comprehend it and I just told her I didn't speak Spanish well and so she just walked away. And then there was a man sitting on a doorstep diagonally from me and I was concerned why he was sitting there looking at me and so I kept pacing backwards and forwards and it was getting darker and in the end I bent down to my pack to get some gloves out and then I just felt my lip trembling and um, and then it just all started. My body was trembling and I was uncontrollably sobbing Mm. and I considered myself a strong independent woman normally in life and here I was reduced to a child you know caught in a dark room and I then started pacing more and the man stood up he could see I was distressed and I was trying to ignore him because I didn't know what his intentions were and then I saw at the end of the street a figure coming down and as they got closer I realised it was Mike and by the time we got he 
got to me, I was, um, I'm very emotional remembering this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he hugged me and he was saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I forgot the time, I'm so sorry, and I just had to um, just sob and sob. And when and then the man came over and it was obvious that he was concerned for me and Mike was telling him, no, it's okay, but thank you. And then we just picked up our packs and just held hands and walked to the hotel that he'd found and yeah. um, without a word because there were no words anymore. Yeah. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful passage of the book because later, Mike, you say, you know, later that night lying on the single bed and, and you just realise just how much you love one another. So gorgeous. Such a beautiful little part of the book. And, and it leads perfectly into the next stage. And so often we write about and talk about the Camino and how things happen that change our perspective and, and consciously and subconsciously. Because a little bit further reading through the book, Mike, you have this dream and, and everything changes from then. Tell us about the dream. Well, up to the point of uh, doing the Camino, um, I wasn't, I wasn't really present to what I was doing. Uh, look, it was partly because it was so, so hot and we met so few people on the Camino. I spent a lot of time in my head just thinking about my business, about things that I was feeling anxious about, about projects I'd do back when I returned home. I just wasn't present. And it was, I realised this, there'd be times when Cece would say, you know, wow, look at these gorgeous flowers. Mm around us and I'd say well what flowers and she'd say well the ones you've been walking over uh, for the past you know 10 minutes and the the Camino was 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 it was a struggle for me at many levels and then one night I remember um just having a dream and I remember it was a night the same night that there was the super moon phenomenon and we'd gone out and looked at the moon and I thought wow that's that's amazing and it made me think, well, what am I actually feeling about that? And I, I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't register anything. But interestingly, I woke up the next morning and I had the dream. And it was a version of, you know, the story A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And um, I was visited in this dream. I was visited by this figure that was a bit like the 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 ghost of Christmas past, except it looked like my old scary headmaster from school. <laughs> and he was pointing this mm-hmm. bony finger at me and he said, get a grip. And I thought in the dream, what do you mean get a grip? Get a grip of what? And that's where the dream ended. And I woke up and I thought, this, this is, there's something in this dream. And we headed out that morning and it was bitingly cold and suddenly I thought, maybe get a grip of, 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 of the reality of what I'm doing and let go of this romantic notion of how it should be. And I thought, okay, maybe I've got a second chance. Maybe if I just stop resisting, if I just accept what I'm going through instead of fighting it and being angry about it, Maybe I'll, I'll change my perspective. Maybe I'll actually be more present to what I'm experiencing. So that, that dream, I think the word is very prescient 
that was very prescient for me about, about how the Camino could be for me. Cece, what did you observe in that time? What was it like for you watching that change emerge in Mike? I think I was, I was happy for him mm. that I could see he, I could see him struggling with this, and part of me thought, boy, you know, I suggested all this. <laughs> He's going through this because of me. Um, I, I think even though I was struggling, I I mostly could be present to the the Camino. In fact, I went to very deep, dark places with it, and in those times when we were both struggling at the same time, I said to Mike that I'm just going to be quiet. Um, I don't want to whinge. I don't want to hear myself whinging. I'm just going to be quiet and I'll walk behind you or in front of you and let's just be by ourselves and just check in, in on each other every now and again. Because I think... You can talk about things to a certain degree, but sometimes you just have to allow it to all bubble up. And and then when it's bubbled up, there's a sense of surrendering. Well, for me, and I think in the end for Mike, there was too. And you can just sit with it. And, you know, you could I could be walking and, and musing about all the things I'm thinking, and then I'd burst into tears Mm. or then I'd say, okay, well, I I hear what's happening there and had these insights come. It was like, you know, the cream on the milk coming to the top. It was because of the silence and because you're allowing yourself to dive to the depths that you needed to allow a, a cracking open or an unfolding of what was going on inside. Yeah. And I think I mentioned uh, just a phrase in the book about meeting myself. If that's what it took to meet myself, then I would do anything. So if this was struggling on the Camino, then it was doing its job for me. Oh. So with my it was just so lovely yeah. to, to see him struggle and come to a place where he could f- feel like he had a purpose and it became more meaningful for him and that he, he had surrendered to a degree, as he said, about losing that resistance, which we both needed to do a degree because I was driving myself instead of allowing myself to just be. Um, so what we expected about having silence and time just to walk was filled with all this flooding of insight and self-awareness, which neither of which we really expected, but maybe it hoped for, um, and it was starting to come to us. So it was... Um, that was wonderful. Yeah. We didn't know it at the time, I have to say. We didn't know it at the time. It was later. Yeah. yeah. 
Walking with your spouse has its challenges, I'm sure. We talked about Hector earlier, but there's a moment in the book where a pilgrim named Goran is running a knife along an upturned china saucer. And Mike, you write that it points to a trope in your marriage where you love the sound of things like ticking clocks, but Cece hates those sounds. But it's the next part of the story that I love the most, and it it talks about what you were just talking about, Cece. Mike, you're doing the washing up and you feel like you did when you were a child. The boy who once enjoyed being silly and would feel awe at the sight of the moon. So, Cece, just in light of what you've just told us, is this one of those times when the Camino provides? Oh, absolutely. We've been bereft, I guess, um, because of the lack of pilgrims. We'd gone late in the year um, so hoping for better weather. Um, but And the Via de la Plata is a very isolated track yeah. most of the time anyway. Yeah. Um, but having met um, Erin Yearn uh, there, um, we walked with them to the albergue that night and um, we were with them only probably about a week in our life. But it was it was life-changing, as it had been with Lee and Dan early in the piece, and they're pilgrims from Canada. And, um, again, uh, we had a relationship now where we could share and it was, oh, it brought such joy to us and um, seeing Mike mess around in the bubbles with, with urine, with bubbles in his beard and all this sort of thing. It was it was dishwashing liquid um, from dishwashings, and it was um, it was joyful. Yeah. And Eva and I just were like two schoolgirls together, and I just uh, loved loved this woman, her childlikeness, her her honesty, her openness, her play, and um, we were transformed in that weak and were more bouncy and um, and we would walk with them and nothing was as hard anymore. So the coming together of of the four souls, so to speak, yeah. was just, oh, you know, life-altering for us. Yeah, how, yeah. Wo- how wonderful. Mike, uh, you write toward the end of the book that you returned to Spain a few years after the Camino and were surprised how much you missed the Camino, the thrill of putting your boots on, the excitement and curiosity of not knowing what was over the hill or around the next corner. So how does it resonate in your day-to-day life today, the Camino? One of the pilgrims we met earlier, uh, Dan and Lee, that CC mentioned from Canada, I remember early on we were... Um, sitting on top of the roof of the albergue, looking out across at um, the sunset. Dan said, you know, um, when you do this, you have lots of time to explore every, every nook and cranny of, um, of your mind. And uh, that's why made it so hard for me, because um, I had to confront myself in a lot of ways. The, the Camino didn't change my life at the time. In fact, I don't know if I can say this, Dan, I was really relieved to finish the Camino and to leave Spain. But it's, it's when I returned home that I realised um, during the Camino, I thought, I often questioned, why am I doing this? Because CC was, was doing it for spiritual reasons. 
And I, I realised one day that the reason I was doing it was because I just wanted to get through this bloody walk. <laughs> and uh, I think Dan said to me once, he used the metaphor, he said, the Camino is like a little life. It's like a reflection of your life. And I remember thinking towards the end of the Camino, that motivation just to get through this was it's probably a motivation for a lot of the challenges in my life, not motivated by joy or motivated by something that resonates in my heart. It's just a challenge just to get through, just another challenge to get through. And it's probably why as well uh, I, uh, I confronted how anxiety was such a major motivator for me during the Camino. So when I returned home, I made lots of decisions about how I wanted to change my business. I wanted to, I made a decision to let go of a part of the business that had accounted for a lot of the revenue. But it wasn't something that, that connected with me deeply. I wanted to do something that, that was more heartfelt. But even little things too, I remember what so impressed me in, in, on the Camino was just the civility, the kindness, the acts of kindness that I experienced. And so I remember coming back home and, and having to head off to a meeting somewhere and I had to catch a train that day. And as I was rushing to meet the train, because I could see it pulling under the, into the station, there, was, um, there were some tourists who were trying to work out the ticketing machine at the station. And I just immediately stopped and my priorities shifted in that moment and I had to sit and help them work through the, uh, the ticketing and my other priorities just washed away and I found myself talking with them about where they're from. I couldn't not stop and be with them because I remembered those acts of kindness and how they were just so profound for me. So I hope that I still do that. I hope that I still take the time um, with people to do those things and put my priorities aside sometimes. Wow, what a great answer. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with the both of you. It's just been so fantastic. And the book is wonderful. It really is lovely. Um, and Cece, sometimes the back of a book <laughs> is always a good place to finish an interview. The back sleeve of happiness is that way, says this unflinchingly honest account of their journey exposes their unique frailties, but also their universal quest, the search for meaning. So Cece, did you find it? <laughs> oh, that's a big one right at the end. Um, I did. Yeah. It wasn't. You did. When and I, and, I and did. hearing Mike's last answer, you sure, you sure did find it. <laughs> it was um, it was cathartic. I came home and not long after I quit my job and I knew I had to take another direction, but also it was about a big learning and I've studied this for as long as I can remember in pastoral care about self-care. And I love looking after other people, absolutely love it. But sometimes I had to take that time out and I had to refill the tank and I need to spend more time. So when I came home, I realised I was still filling that tank and I wasn't ready. But I went on to do 
other things that I wouldn't have thought I would have. Um, and still being kind, thinking, well, what if I'm in a good place, then whoever I can support um, will be cared for uh, properly and appropriately and lovingly. And I j- and then there was a relax a relaxing again surrendering feeling um, that um, all is well when I am well, and um, the same with the people who the, the, who experience a ripple effect of that from me. Yeah, how mm. wonderful! Wow, I want to say to both of you, congratulations for having the courage to write. What you both admit is an unflinchingly honest account. It's a wonderful read because it's a wonderful story. So thanks very much for taking the time, Mike and Cece. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Buen Camino. Buen Camino, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. My guests this week were Cece Edwards-Jenkins and Mike Jenkins, authors of Happiness Is That Way, 55 Days on the Camino Via de la Plata. You can find the book at happinessisthatway.shop. It's also in a couple of bookshops around Melbourne, Bo Morris Books, Readings in St Kilda, Farrell's in Mornington, Hobart Books, Bogong's, that's a bookshop in Melbourne, and Backpack Light in Melbourne as well. Easy, happinessisthatway.shop. Roy R. Bennett, author of books like The Light in the Heart, wrote, Real change is difficult at the beginning, but gorgeous at the end. Change begins the moment you get the courage and step outside your comfort zone. Change begins at the end of your comfort zone. Thanks for your company as always. I'm Dan Mullins. Until next week, Buen Camino. Buen Camino.